Hi and welcome to the 13th episode of Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and by my side as per usual is Martin Jansson, uh, associate professor in theoretical philosophy here at Lund University. Uh, and our guest today is uh, one of Britain's now living most influential philosophers, Simon Blackburn, uh, who is a fellow at Trinity College in Cambridge, a professor at UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and a professor at the New College of Humanities in London. Uh, perhaps best known for being the founding father of quasi-realism, uh, Professor Blackburn has also written numerous books on many different uh, topics, including truth, prediction, and how to be good. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for interviewing me. <laughs> so as one of our ambitions is to uh, let our guests talk about their philosophical development, a good idea might be to start from the beginning and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts. Oh, golly. Well, my first philosophical thought, I think, when I remember back- backwards, was um, at my first school, primary school. Um, we were all collected every morning in a a kind of uh, little prayer, um, which is quite common in Church of England schools. Um, And the teacher told us that if we shut our eyes, um, angels would be in the room. But if anybody opened their eyes, they went, they disappeared. And my thought was, how does she know? (laughs) Um, Because obviously, well, you get the point. So that was uh, my first ever philosophical thought. Nothing came of it, um, but it troubled me for a while. And um, then I suppose later on, of course, I began to worry about uh, the shape of the universe, what happened at the edge of space, the usual things which I think children do worry about. Mm. And uh, then in um, my teenage years, I became interested in, I suppose, the philosophy of religion. was always an atheist, but one had to argue about it. And uh, then I read natural sciences to go up to Cambridge, maths, physics, chemistry, and philosophy had not much part of it. But um, as I entered Cambridge, I changed to read philosophy. Cambridge, you have to read a subject, a particular subject. You can't make a smorgasbord of um, different courses. So I changed to philosophy. Never How come? regretted it. Um, I think I was just very interested in foundational and theoretical issues. Um, I remember when I was taught the calculus in mathematics, I didn't like the, uh, as it were, the sort of slightly magical kind of air about it, that you could measure the slope of a curve at a point. I could see how you could measure the slope over a distance, but at a point, and that sort of thing. And of course, uh, then I, that interested me in mathematical logic, and uh, Cambridge was the place to go. I see. So, what kind of topics did you concern yourself with initially when you started reading philosophy? Well, um, well the syllabus is fairly directive, so you just have to follow the syllabus. Um, the part, uh, the preliminary exam, as they called it in Cambridge, 
uh, involved epistemology and metaphysics, one paper. Uh, formal logic was another paper. Ethics was a third. Um, I think there was a history component. There certainly was in the second year. Um, I can't remember whether that was true in the first year. But anyhow, those were enough to keep me busy. Um, I see. Uh, so, so this was at Trinity College? In this was at Trinity College, Cambridge, yes. Mm-hmm. Did you have any influential teachers during this time that made an impact the, on you? The main tutor there, the person who saw me um, every week, who told me to write an essay about this or do some exercises you know, in logic or something, was a man called Casimir Louis, who was Polish. Uh, he was an exile from Poland from just before the Second World War, uh, in which uh, all his family were um, uh, executed by the Nazis. Um, but he was in Britain, and he was a very remarkable, gifted teacher. And so several of us under his um, care went on to become philosophers. We got the got the bug. Um, yeah. see. Um, when did you, when was this? Uh, this was 19, 1962 was my first year in Cambridge. It was a very cold year. <laughs> um. And then uh, moving on, so when you, you you got sort of elective components, what 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 branch of philosophy uh, did you want to? Uh, that's right. In the third year, you, the, the the choice was quite limited. You could specialize in classical philosophy, in early modern philosophy. That's really from Descartes through Kant, um, or in logic, and I did logic. It was probably a mistake because. Um, Uh, formal logic is either, I think, very easy at the elementary level, but it very quickly becomes quite difficult. And especially in those days, there weren't any very good textbooks. In fact, the main textbook we had was um, by Mendelssohn, and it was written in Fraktur, in the German script, which is almost unreadable to English eyes. So it was difficult already. Was Russell around at this time in Cambridge? Russell was still alive, and I did once see him, but I never talked to him. Oh, uh, I was too shy to go up and say, hello, I'm a philosopher as well. Uh, mm. uh. So um, was it natural to move on and make to uh, make a PhD out of your... Yes, when I graduated, there was a, a choice. Um, I thought if... if um, My teachers, and especially Casimir Louis, had confidence in me. I'd like to go on and do a PhD, but I also thought I might have to leave and do law was going to be the alternative. And um, I sometimes wonder what life would have been like if I'd become a lawyer. Um, it would have certainly been very different, mm. different wife, different children, different income, <laughs> um, and so on. Yeah. So what was your topic during your PhD? Uh... Yeah, um, it was Hume's problem, the problem of induction, as it's sometimes called, which um, is basically our right to extrapolate what we've noticed about the world into other spaces or other places and times, and especially into the future. So it's sometimes um, put as, how do we know the sun will rise tomorrow? Um, and um, I was interested in Uh, the reasoning behind that, of course, Hume himself had a rather skeptical view of the problem. That is, he thought there was no particular reason to expect anything, um, but nature forced us to expect 
uh, what we're used to to continue. Yeah. Um, so, so it's just a psychological just, fact. It's about a us. psychological uh, conservatism. Yeah. Conservative. We expect as little change as possible. Um, and I was anxious to try and show that reason had more to do with it, mm-hmm. um, but I failed actually, as many as many other people have. Um, so, but in the in the course of writing that, I became very interested in probability and causation and other things to do with the philosophy of science, especially. When did you submit your? Um, I submitted my PhD in 1969. And I was given the degree in 1970. So, so did did uh, your concerns uh, um, with probability occupy you after you finished, or what um, did you move on to do? I I think I wrote one paper about probability, um, which came out in 1977. Is it uh, very little? Um, uh, it was to do with um, Frank Ramsey, F.P. Ramsey, and his uh, personalist or subjective, it's sometimes called, theory of probability, uh, which I was anxious to defend. Um, I, I thought that the label given to it by Leonard Savage, the subjective theory, was a pity. It was a mistake because I don't think there's anything especially subjective about it. But it was anti-metaphysical. It didn't believe in chances or dispositions. Uh, it just believed in people and their uh, credence levels, their levels of confidence in different propositions. And so announcing a probability was like announcing a betting rate that you're prepared to accept rather than anything um, objective or real about the world. Um, and you you brought your fa- first book around here, except for thesis, uh, reasons um, and prediction. Yes, reason and prediction came out in about uh, 1973 or four, I think. Yeah, I think um, some bits of it I think were quite useful. Some bits I rather regret. Which or which or what uh, kind of? I think there was quite a good discussion of Goodman's paradox in yeah. the middle of the book, and I think there was also a reasonable discussion of an approach to the problem of induction which had been made by um, an Oxford economist, actually, a man called Roy Harrod, which had interested A.J. Eyre, Freddie Eyre, the the, um, verificationist philosopher. And I think those those two chapters, I think, perhaps were worth the degree, (laughs) but (laughs) the rest, I think, was not very good. I know you're famous for quasi-realism. Mm-hmm. How did you yes. come into that field and what is it? <clears throat> In a way, that was a natural development of the work on probability. Um, although its principal application has uh, been in moral philosophy. Um, yes, well, um, I mentioned that uh, Ramsey, for example, had a, a a theory of probability in which you're not describing some aspect of the world. You're not really describing a thing or a fact about the world. You're expressing degrees of confidence, and that's thought of as a different kind of activity, a different kind of speech act, if you like. Um, So you've got a contrast between descriptions of the world and things which aren't quite that. There's something else. Um, Now, a very uh, common application of that idea is in moral philosophy where there existed, for example, 
in uh, AJS work, in the work of the uh, positivists, um, what used to be called an emotive theory of ethics, according to which when I say that um, it's uh, wrong to stamp on babies for fun, um, I'm not so much announcing a fact about the world as, as it were, putting myself against. I'm adopting a stance of being against stamping on babies for fun. So you could expect that if I see you stamping on babies for fun, I'm going to try to stop you or get the law to stop you or in some way be against you. Um, and I might be for prohibiting that activity. And that again is an announcement of, uh, an announcement of my own stance towards something rather than a response to an aspect of reality, a moral aspect of reality. Um, now, the emotive theory of ethics uh, had come under a lot of suspicion. It was thought to be too subjective again. It was thought to take the oomph out of ethics. It was made ethics merely a matter of attitude. Um, and there were various more technical or semantic arguments against it, which we could go into if you like. Um, anyhow, all this meant that they, there was a sort of confused battleground with different philosophers taking different positions. And my contribution in Safazai made one, I think, was to say that the uh, method, the, the methodology of this, of this battleground was not well understood. People didn't really know what counted as a good or a bad argument for the different positions. And so there's a lot of confusion, but not much light. Um, and to try and make this um, you know, stick, to try and make it uh, uh, important in people's minds, I invented the label quasi-realism, uh, really to describe somebody who had, an, uh, had the emotive sort of impulse, the emotive starting point, but who found themselves able without strain to say quite a lot of the things that realists had thought they alone could say. So realists would say things like, we can talk about, for example, moral knowledge, but you can't because there's nothing to know, as it were. Whereas I would say, well, you know, if I am sufficiently against stamping on babies for fun, why can't I claim not only that it's wrong, but I know that it's wrong? And that would be a way of expressing that, in my mind, the issue is closed. It's not even an open issue. I'm not even perhaps prepared to argue about it. It's just if you think it's okay to stamp on babies for fun, you're beyond the pale. Um, there's nothing else I can say to you. Um, well, if it's got that, uh, in my mind, it's got that uh, status of being done and dusted, why can't I say that I know it to be true? Because that's actually one of the functions of claims to knowledge is to claim that an issue lies uh, beyond further doubt. Um, it's done and dusted, as I say. So um, although people had called emotivists non-cognitivists, they weren't allowed to talk about knowledge, I wanted to say, well, maybe we can. Why shouldn't, why shouldn't we uh, have a story about knowledge which entitles us to talk about it in this connection? Um, similarly, in, if you have a Ramsey theory of probability, People call it subjective, but why shouldn't I, if the uh, evidence is good enough, claim to know, um, for example, some chance? So I might 
um, I might claim to know, given my age, that the chance of my living another 25 years is very low. And it certainly is. It would be very remarkable if I lived another 25 years. Um, so why couldn't I claim to know that? There's, you know, It's not as if I expect to read in the papers that my chances have suddenly improved. Um, but then claims about knowledge sort of express uh, conviction in your original latitude for, yes. for the probability case. And the, yes, the that's right, exactly. Yeah. Express conviction. Yeah. Um, now again, people would say, well, that's subjectivizing or somehow it's uh, it's stealing the notion of knowledge, which has a kind of capital K. Um, and I wanted to say, well, okay, what's the argument that the notion of knowledge is ever more than this? So again, there's a question of what's the method for arguing these things. So I, I'm rather sorry that I picked the label quasi-realism because realism in the intervening 30, 40 years has itself become a very contested notion. So it's not as it were a landmark, which is nice and well understood. Um, and uh, as, the, as the years have unfolded, the, the way the debates are conducted has changed. Um, and that's why people keep on talking about it, I suppose. Given the chance, what what would you label it today? Um, I suppose I'd label it something like non-descriptive functionalism, <laughs> but it probably wouldn't have caught on. <laughs> so perhaps I should just be quiet about it. <laughs> I see. So you wrote essays in quasi-realism yes. in '93, but I'm, I'm guessing that yes. that's... A bit after that, the... That's right. Many of the essays in that were written in the 1980s. I think one or two may have been even earlier than that, but certainly the 1980s. So, but this this preoccupied you for a while. Uh, yes. Um, the uh, change, I think, happened in 1984 when I wrote a, a, a general book about um, the philosophy of language called Spreading the Word. And the quasi-realist program occupied just one chapter of nine chapters in that book. But it was the one that people started talking about. And so so I got invited to conferences to talk about it and all the rest of it. Mm. Mm. Um, so how, so we're still concerned with the sort of underlying um, uh, tension between realism and anti-realism yes. uh, in general? Or, and did you pursue other projects related to that later? Um, I certainly pursued other projects than the purely moral philosophy, the project in moral philosophy. I was very interested in modal, modal idioms, possibility and necessity, and I began to see parallels between them and ought and good and bad and so on in moral philosophy. So... Um, I began to think of, uh, say, a, um, a, a, a verdict that something was necessarily true being equivalent to a command to, uh, as it were, to accept it, um, and the verdict that something was possibly false uh, being a kind of opening of a door, permission to explore its falsity to see if it um, really held up or not. Um, so I wanted to see uh, modal remarks of necessity and possibility as something like commands and permissions. Um, 
So modal logic became rather a sort of um, side shoot of deontic logic in my mind. Um, now, at just this point, of course, the whole profession was being bowled over by David Lewis, who took a very different view that possibilities were real, or possible worlds were real uh, entities in space or in some sort of space. And, uh, and that was, a again, a realism which I felt we'd do better without. Yeah. Mm, yeah. In relation to the quasi-realism, mm. you have this uh, challenge, Blackburn's mm. challenge. Mm -hmm. What is that? Um, I suppose it's the challenge to a realist to say something that's either beyond um, the kind of thing that an expressivist could say. Um, well, sorry, that is both beyond the kind of thing that an expressivist could say and is a sensible thing to say. And um, I don't think there's realists have done well meeting that challenge. Um, for example, uh, Tim Scanlon, Derek Parfit in Moral Philosophy have announced themselves, and other people of course, announced themselves as realists. But often it seems to amount to little more than thumping the table and saying it's true that you mustn't stamp on blind, blind babies or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Uh, and I say that just the same as them. So it's not as if they're then laying down a metaphysical or any other kind of philosophical thesis that lies beyond the expressivist uh, repertoire, uh, something that the expressivist can't bring himself to say. So the challenge was to them to say how they distinguish themselves from expressivism. I don't think they do a good job of it, actually. <laughs> If we turn it around, do you mm. still feel that there's an important difference between quasi-realism and expressivism that you also um, defend yourself against? Right. Well, I think it's uh, one way the debate has gone in recent years, especially, is um, to a certain kind, towards a certain kind of quietism about it all. Um, I mean, if I was right that the expressivist becomes indistinguishable from the self-styled realist, then of course one reaction is going to be to say, well, there's no. There's no debate in metaethics. There's nothing left to argue about. And some people have taken that line. I think, for example, uh, Ronnie Dworkin um, has elements of that in his position, although he himself was very anxious that he had no, in, no um, sympathy with expressivism. But I think that's because he misunderstood it. So um, he's an example of a realist who I think didn't really have anything good to say, but thought he had something good to say. <laughs> It's not an uncommon position in philosophy. <laughs> uh, okay, so so mm. what did you turn to next after? Uh, well, I think that um, probably two things happened um, in the 90s, 1990 onwards. One was in 1990, uh, Paul Horridge, Uh, wrote a book on truth, uh, which was very influential. And it really put um, what subsequently became known as the deflationist theory of truth on the map. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, a deflationist theory of truth starts from an observation which was uh, probably due to Frege. Frege was certainly one of the earliest um, logicians and philosophers to, to notice it. 
and this was this was an observation Frege made in I think about 1905. Um, which is that um, if I if I make a fairly ordinary everyday assertion, like um, this thing on the table is an iPhone, it makes no difference whether I say this thing on the table is an iPhone, or it's true that this thing on the table is an iPhone. The assertion it's true, in or the um, prefix it's true that, doesn't change the content of what I'm telling you. Um, and similarly, you couldn't say, well, I know there's an iPhone on the table, but I wonder if it's true that there's an iPhone on the table. That, that would make no sense. Well, that's a peculiar property because it suggests that the word is true that, it is true that, um, adds no content to the assertion. It's, it's as it were, a, it's a bit like coughing or clearing your throat before making an assertion. Um, which makes it odd that it's such a topic of concern to logicians and uh, semantic theorists and people. Well, deflationists say um, that Frege's observation is uh, extremely important. It's pregnant. It's, it's the most important thing to say about the notion of truth. Um, but there are explanations of why we have the term. The explanation is not that truth is some a strange metaphysical relation or property, something that, uh, as it were, requires scientific investigation. The explanation is just that sometimes you want to, um, you don't simply want to say that some given assertion is true. You also want to um, generalize and to refer indirectly to assertions. So I might want to say, for example, everything Einstein said was true. Um, now, I haven't told you what Einstein said. Um, and you can't do without the notion of is true in that sentence. If I just said everything Einstein said, I haven't said anything. I haven't given you any information. So when I say everything Einstein said is true, I have given you information. Um, so how do we reconcile that with Frege's insight? Um, and the deflationist answer is that, um, in a sense, I put you in a kind of waiting state. Um, that is, I haven't told you what Einstein said, but if you trust me, then when you learn that Einstein said e equals mc squared, um, you're in a position to uh, say, well, e equals mc squared. Or if you like, it's true that e equals mc squared. Um, so, as it were, I've given you a, a ticket, an inference ticket, that um, once you learn what Einstein said, you can go on and infer something or other. Um, and so um, the notion of truth becomes a kind of logical device for um, uh, um, permitting people to make an inference which they wouldn't otherwise be able to make. So it's mm. it, it's um, uh, it's not a, a substantial metaphysical relation between no. expressions and the world. No. Rather, it's sort of a, so Horwich deflates it and says, "Well, it's just this logical." That's right. Yeah. That's right. So that, hence, deflationism. Yeah. Sometimes it's called minimalism, but that's a little bit confusing because it's got other um, other min implications. Crispin Wright calls it minimalism, but it's the same thing. Nice. And the Horwich um, 
made a very powerful defense of this in his 1990 book. And this influenced me a great deal because um, it suddenly appeared that um, the, the expressivist in the theory of ethics, he didn't have to anymore see himself as opposed to the idea that moral remarks are true or false, because they were true or false in the minimalist sense, just like others. Um, and this made logic much easier. So whereas in the 80s I'd been uh, concerned to try to develop a, um, a sort of alternative semantics for moral remarks, in the 90s it became apparent this wasn't really needed. You could just plug into everyday truth conditional logic because of minimalism about truth or deflationism about truth. Um, and confine your expressivism to a kind of meta-semantic doctrine, a doctrine about how um, moral language gets going in the first place. You don't have to worry about truth anymore. And so this, this was a shift in, in attitude. And as a number of writers started pointing out, it makes, it, it, it makes the quasi-realist program almost true by uh, default um, because... Uh, it's inevitably going to be difficult to say what's, what's different about the functions of different parts of language if we've gone minimalist or deflationist about so much. So that was the, uh, that was the next trajectory. And at about the same time, I became aware that a lot of what I was interested in had been in some ways covered by the pragmatist tradition in philosophy. Um, the American pragmatists, Peirce, James, Dewey, um, but also precursors, um, elements in Thomas Hobbes, quite a lot in Hume, and quite a lot in Berkeley, actually. So I became interested in that bit of the history, um, and that's uh, occupied me quite a lot since then. Berkeley, um, I mean, the British empiricists, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, are all supposed to have taken from Locke the view that the content of a remark um, consisted in the ideas that it expresses, which is a natural enough thing to say, but their, their concept of an idea was something like a sensor, a replay of a sensory presentation. And it became clear that that might perhaps do for things like an idea of the color blue. You can imagine the color blue. It's rather like sort of a, a, a private mental picture of a blue thing. But if you think of something like the notion of causation, it's not clear what comes to mind. I mean, maybe you get an image of a, two billiard balls or something, and one knocks the other and the other goes off. But where in that is the idea that the second one had to move because the first one hit it? All you get is the idea of a succession of motions. Um, now, that worried Hume a great deal. But before Hume, I discovered, well, I didn't discover because people knew, but um, Berkeley had worried about ideas of the self. Again, imagery doesn't seem to do, be much help ideas of time, um, ideas of force or power or causation. Um, all those had been problematic to Berkeley 
because he had no um, no way of dealing with the fact that we mean things by these terms, and yet the imagery doesn't seem to be the the way in which we we manage that meaning and we have our understandings. Um, so Berkeley, although he's a very empiricist-minded philosopher, he had this problem with central elements in our thought, which didn't seem to fit into his empiricism. Hume went the same way. Um, Hume then came up with a kind of expressivist, if you like, um, solution in the case of causation. He thought that we... Um, uh, that the only sensory presentations that the world ever gives us are just one event after another, um, but that we dignify some of these regularities as causal, as a way of expressing a, a policy of um, confidence that if the first happens, the second will happen. Um, so it's, uh, causation, I mean, in a sense, lies in the mind of the beholder rather than in the the fact about the world. This has been much misunderstood, but I think it's the uh, the essence of Hume's view is an expressivist view of causation. So I, I started writing about Hume in that connection. Uh, a precursor still earlier was Thomas Hobbes, actually, who um, uh, mocked theologians who tried to describe the nature of God by saying that they they stumble, uh, they they can't say anything intelligible. Um, but all they're really doing is expressing piety. They're, they're not actually managing to say anything about God. They're just um, saying, wow, or <laughs> hooray, uh, um, expressing an attitude towards the, the world. So, so all these were sort of early expressivists in a variety of areas, not in moral philosophy, but in other things. And, um, uh, and I began to realize that they were part of a, an ongoing pragmatist tradition. Um, it's there in James, in Peirce, in Dewey, and various other writers. Um, and of course, it's quite a big thing con in contemporary philosophy, um, where pragmatism has kind of, I think, resurfaced after a, a fairly bad 50 years um, for reasons I'm... Um, uh, I think are quite complicated. It became associated with the kind of um, attitude of Richard Rorty and other bad boys, and um, I think it can be. Uh, I think it can be given a much more friendly face than that. So I become one can become interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, we have asked our students to also ask you a question yes so uh, here goes it's yes. from anton and his friends uh, mm. given that values are based from facts about the world how do values function in interpersonal relations the community mm. given the present questioning of facts um right um the way values function i think is and i've already in a sense um mentioned this is I think they most essentially function as ways of coordinating and to some extent directing people's behaviors, their preferences, their um, what is permitted, what is forbidden. Um, so we talk about values in connection with um, putting pressure on people's choices and actions. 
either forbidding them or permitting them or generally sketching the boundaries uh, of what we find permissible. Um, that's obviously uh, more, um, more centrally what's involved in so-called deontic vocabulary, vocabulary about what ought to happen, what's permissible, what's obligatory. Um, but even if you're just talking about good and bad, values which have less to do with prohibitions and insistence, um, you're probably putting pressure on people's preferences or choices. So if I tell you that um, Beethoven's a better composer than Mozart, um, I'm inviting you to value Beethoven more highly than Mozart, to choose to go to the Beethoven concert rather than the Mozart concert and so on, and to perhaps listen to Beethoven with more concentration than you listen to Mozart or whatever it is. In other words, I'm interested in shifting your preferences in some way. That's the suggestion. Um, so that's a, got an essentially social function for um, uh, for value talk and for uh, talk about obligation and so on. Um, of course, that's... Um, that that function only takes place against a background of facts. Um, now, if we had no facts to go on, I don't think we'd be in a position to express any values. Um, and that's obviously right. If you tell me that um, your sister Judith's husband is Fred and your sister Betty's husband is Henry, and then saying, which do you think is better, Fred or Henry? I've got nothing to go on. I don't know anything about either of them. But if you tell me that um, Fred uh, beats Judith and Henry is very kind to Betty, then I begin to have something to go on. Um, but we can only evaluate people or um, composers or whatever it might be in the light of other things that we suppose ourselves to know about them. Sometimes we do know the things that we claim to know. Sometimes we're, it's a little bit more uncertain. Um, but that's the background against which we evaluate things. Um, well, uh, if we were skeptical about facts, I'm not quite sure what, the, what Anton and his friends have in mind. Um, if, for example, I thought we don't know anything about President Trump, then, of course, I wouldn't know any way of evaluating him as good or bad or capable or incapable. Um, and I certainly take myself to know things about President Trump, and so does everybody in this room, I expect. Um, but if a determined skeptic came along and said, oh, you can't believe what you read in the newspapers, you can't believe anything on the radio, you can't believe the BBC, um, um, and if they convince me of that, which is unlikely, but if they convince me of that, then of course I'd have to stop thinking of Trump as less than admirable or as stupid or as capricious or as a bully, uh, all the things I do think. <laughs> um, but uh, that's a very determined skepticism. And I think it would be unwarranted because I think we know quite a lot about President Trump. Um, the worries that philosophers have had about facts don't usually extend to worrying about say, knowing that I'm now in a room, that I'm now talking to a microphone, that 
I'm there are two other people in the room with me, and so on. Um, that that's uh, an extreme skepticism, which probably nobody's ever held. Actually, um, there are stories of ancient Greek determined skeptics, but they're probably legends. Um, there's a chap called Philo who, um, uh, who's um, well, never mind. There, there are stories about skeptics. <laughs> never mind Philo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're touching these subjects of uh, talking about fact and mm. can we believe the media? Mm. Well, perhaps mm. we should. Uh, but what role do you think philosophers could have in this sort of uh, post-truth society? Right. Um, well, I think the most important thing, we, the most important role we have is educational, if only people would listen. <laughs> um, I think that um, children ought to learn to handle uncertainty, um, to handle cases where uh, evidence is mixed, it's not clear which way it points, um, evidence is defective. Um, all the things that, for example, a court of law has to do to weigh evidence, to assess probabilities, to know what it doesn't know, to know where there's gaps in the case or when um, more needs to be found out. Um, And I think experience in that is a very important component of education. And it's one that philosophers have thought about probability and reason and knowledge and truth should have a role in promoting Um, and unfortunately, in most educational systems, there's very little philosophy in school. And when there is, it's not necessarily very well taught. Um, and I think that's a, an educational vacuum, which is a, a great pity. Um, and we have a, you know, the world would be better if we had more of a role in, in it. And certainly the quality of debate, say, in, uh, in public affairs, is, I think, r- regrettably very low. Um, I mean, you, if you read something like the, say, the Federalist Papers of the United States, the discussions that preceded the formation of the United States Constitution, which is a wonderful document, the Federalist Papers are educated people arguing very carefully about very important and fundamental matters. Uh, it's a level of debate you never see these days, or we, we don't in Britain. Uh, maybe you do in Sweden. <laughs> If so, I envy you. But um, where um, so often these things just become shouting matches, mm. and uh, I think that's a great shame. People, Is this something you have written on? Um, no, I've um, uh, I've talked about it occasionally, but I don't think I've ever written anything about it. I'd quite like to. I mean, I've, I've written, I mean, one of the great founding texts of this kind of practical epistemology is Hume's great essay on miracles. <clears throat> Hume asks whether you should ever believe testimony that a miracle has occurred, where a miracle is something clean outside the ordinary run of nature. So people raised from the dead, people walking on the water, that sort of thing. And Hume says, well, Basically, whenever you're faced with a story like that, um, you've got two options. Either the miraculous event happened and this testimony is correct, or this testimony is incorrect and the miraculous event didn't happen. Now, the trouble is the 
Um, testimony, human testimony is quite good. It's often correct. If you ask a stranger in the street the time of day, they probably give you the time of day. Um, but, of course, we know it's not perfect. We know that people lie, people make mistakes, people forget things, people misinterpret what they're told, all kinds of things get in. There's a lot of grit gets into the machinery of human communication. Um, so whenever you're faced with a tale about a miracle and you ask yourself, which is the most likely, it's almost inevitable because a miracle has to be about as unlikely as you can imagine. Um, so if, uh, if I tell you I was late to this appointment because the traffic was heavy, that's fine. You can accept that. If I tell you I was late to this appointment because um, there was a, a, a flock of flying pigs got in the way, you say, hang on, you know, is this guy mad? Is he joking? Um, what happened? You know, is, was there some kind of illusion in the, in the air? Has he been taking something? Um, in other words, you look for alternative explanations because it's far more likely that that report has something wrong with it than that the world has suddenly contained a flock of flying pigs. Um, and so Hume lays it down as a, a hurdle which testimony for a miracle has to overcome that the, um, the falsity of the report would be as great a miracle as what it's reporting. And that he thinks is a hurdle which is almost never, or in fact never, um, uh, mounted. It's never surmounted. It's too high a hurdle for human testimony to overcome. So it's a, it's, it's a great piece of practical epistemology. Um, Hume himself said he thought it was a, a contribution which would last as long as the human tendency to superstition lasted. And, um, and, it was very, um, and, you know, it's not just miracles. Whenever you've got pieces of evidence which point in diverse ways, you've got the same kind of weighing balance to perform. It was formalized by Bayes, Thomas Bayes, as Bayes' theorem. Bayes probably thought he was refuting Hume. Bayes was a clergyman. But Hume's is actually a piece of Bayesian reasoning. And, um, and I think kids can be taught the elements of that. So, um, we need to conclude. So we were um, curious about uh, looking back on, on your contribution to, to various uh, uh, topics. What, what do you feel sort of you're most proud of or feel that this, this is sort of... <laughs> yes. Um, I, um, I think probably the best book I ever wrote um, was called Ruling Passions, and that was a sort of full-scale um, attempt to talk about the psychology behind moral theory, um, moral activities. Um, it was kind of answer to Bernard Williams, who was skeptical about morality. Um, I think that's probably the single work. I think the single contribution I'm most pleased about was a paper called Morals and Modals, which was the paper which extended expressivism from being a local theory about ethics to being a theory of modality, uh, possibility, necessity, causation, 
natural law, no, notions like that. Um, and I think that was, I, I think, looking back, I wouldn't write that paper very differently. Some of my papers I would now write very differently, but um, not that one. Thank you so much for coming. Um, uh, Professor Blackburn is also our um, this year's uh, Puffendorf lecturer. By the time you hear this, it's too late to see see him live, but the uh, lectures are being recorded and you can find them online. And we'll also want to thank Lam Studion for the possibility to record there. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.